I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the, the more engaging books of the season, a terrific book of history, is the latest by David Spanner. It's called Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983. It looks at what happened in British Columbia following the spring re-election of the Social Credit Party. It's Premier Bill Bennett's third election victory, and soon a raft of uh, legislation is proposed, some 26 bills. If you go uh, to see some of the old Jack Webster BCTV shows on YouTube, that September, as he returns to the air, he refers to it all as Bennett's master plan. It's not hyperbole, as we read in David's book. The legislation is right-wing, neoconservative in nature, slashing spending throughout the government, undermining unions and marginalizing minorities. Soon, a resistance movement emerges, bringing together trade unionists, activists, and people who'd neither protested nor been politicized previously. Mr. Spanner, who joins me now, provides the scene that summer. As a couple of uh, public sector unions were on strike, the teachers and the B.C. Government Employees Union, there are street protests, occupations, and plans for an all-out general strike. And going beyond describing day-to-day events, David also looks at the various people involved, giving the reader a sense of their background and what compels them to get involved with solidarity. Some have roots going back generations with unions or activism. Some do not. There are familiar names like uh, filmmaker Nettie Wilde, as well as Raj Chohan, who's now the uh, Speaker of the B.C. Legislature, Fred Waugh, Patsy George, Stan Persky, and many others. We meet the larger-than-life characters associated with Solidarity, like Jack Monroe and Art Cuby. We get a sense in the book as to British Columbia and its unique political landscape. The polarization politically between the left and the right is at its height, and election results bear this out before 1983 and later. The flashes of activism, whether it's um, uh, the labor union movement or environmentalism or anti-war, anti-nuclear groups are chronicled. And we get a sense of the heady times from the 1960s on that sort of set in motion what happens in 1983. It's a lively book, an important history, considering solidarity itself fizzles out by the fall of uh, that year. I'll ask David about that and more. David Spanner is a veteran journalist who's worked as a feature writer, movie critic, reporter, and editor for numerous newspapers and magazines. He's also been a cultural and political organizer. He is a graduate of Simon Fraser University and the author of Dreaming in the Rain and Shoot It, Hollywood, Inc. and the Rising of Independent Film. This new book is published by Ronsdale Press. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, David Spanner. Mr. Spanner, good morning. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Um, I was telling you just before we started uh, how much I enjoyed the book. Um, how, how did it come about? How did you decide to write about Solidarity and, and this year, 1983? Well, you know, I, I had sort of uh, come out of the uh, underground press and, and um, the, the new left and back in those days. And, and in 1983, I had gotten my first job at sort of a mainstream daily. It was like there was a third daily in the Vancouver area at the time called the Columbian. And I, and I had started work there just as uh, the Solidarity Uprising was happening. So I ended up covering it, and, and it went on for four months that, from uh, July to November. And I covered a fair amount of it, uh, and, you know, meetings, rallies, Etc. And uh, over the years, uh, after that, I kind of I noticed that it's sort of been lost by history. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it had happened in New York or Paris, it would have been the stuff of legends. There'd be a whole pile of books written about it, documentary films. But 
it had kind of been lost. It's not mentioned much or, or recalled very much. There's been a bit written about it, but not much. And so in the back of my mind, I, I thought, you know, it'd be, I think it's kind of important to document this. This was a remarkable event, one of the great uprisings in the history of North America. And I think it's important to document it while uh, there are still people around to talk about it. Yeah. And so that was kind of the impetus originally. And when, while I started writing, though, uh, uh, it became more timely, and a, uh, another sort of a whole other meaning uh, was added to that. And, and that was that there was the rise of, of uh, far-right governments, you know, mm. and, and like the Trumpism, and, but also other places like Brazil and um, Hungary and, and other places. And, and if you look at what actually happened in B.C. in 1983, it's it's like a lesson on how to mobilize um, a mass movement against the far right government, and and so it took on a new timeliness while I was writing it, and uh, you know, so so that's kind of the background. Yeah. To it. So take us to 1983 in May of that year. The there was a, a provincial election. The the, the Sok Reds um, are uh, reelected, but uh, as I read in the book, the NDP they were considered. Um, I guess they're poised to win, were they? Well, a lot of people thought they were going to win, you know, but that that happened a number of times, you know, the people oh, sure. the yeah. NDP were going to win an election and, and the Socrates would win. Back in those days, the province was really divided between those two parties. I mean, literally from the 1950s to the 1990s, the, part yeah. of the province was largely divided. And one was a remnant of uh, of the right movements of the 1930s, the Socreds, or the so, which uh, was short for Social Credit Party, mm-hmm. and um, the NDP, uh, which was kind of a, a remnant of 1930s uh, left populist movements. And so they those those two movements pretty much uh, politically divided the province in those days. And what happened in '83 was there was a provincial election in May, and Bill Bennett. Uh, who's the Socred premier, uh, won, won the election, and uh, surprised everyone uh, a short time later in July because he hadn't campaigned on, on this stuff, but he unleashed this avalanche of far-right legislation that attacked virtually every, every, everyone, every social program, every bit of progress that had been made in the province uh, through the 20th century. I mean, union rights were attacked, women. Uh, gays, minority rights, um, the Medicare system, edu- education. It was a sweeping uh, legislation. And I think what, uh, what surprised e- e- Bennett and surprised everybody, really, was that there was a rising of resistance across the entire province against this legislation. Um, you know, not just Vancouver, yeah. not just uh, Victoria, but... Small towns across the province, there were rallies, there were occupations, there was a, a move towards an all-out general strike against it across the province. Well, wasn't this, though, the trend? I mean, Bennett's legislation, if you look at what was happening in Britain or in the United States with Thatcher and Reagan, the sort of neoconservative view, wasn't this afoot at the time? Yeah, you're right. It was not in isolation. That uh, It was pretty much in league with... Uh, uh, you know Thatcher and Reagan's austerity theology, and uh, and what had happened though that, but you know it was interesting though that in Canada, 
they decided to enact that kind of legislation in B.C., which historically had been the most progressive province with uh, a a significant number of left-wing unions Mm -hmm. and a lot of people who had been activists since, you know, for decades. Other people had been activists since the movements of the 60s and 70s. There was just a lot of... B.C. was the most left province in the country. So the fact that they uh, uh, tried this uh, to enact this sort of Canadian version of Reaganism in B.C. is what caught some people by surprise. The book really comes alive when you provide sketches of the various people that you talk about throughout the book. You, you give us their sort of background, their, their, their life story, and then you take us to where they are in 1983 and what motivates them to get involved with the movement. Um, these were, were uh, people who were, were very different, yet um, a lot of them have had activism in their background, didn't they? I mean, they, their parents were activists in the 30s mm-hmm. and, and the, mm-hmm. during the Depression, if you will. Um, so so w- when they get politicized, as they do in 1983, um, that, that's not a big surprise. I mean, you just alluded to a moment ago just how left-wing this place was in the 60s and 70s. Um, you, you, you go through your book here, David, and there, there are movements that come out of this place, whether it's Greenpeace or, or um, you know, other left-wing movements that, that sort of come alive here. And, and there really was an activist spirit in, in Vancouver especially, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, there was. And, and you know, you, you referenced the, that, that style of, of doing mini-biographies of a lot of the people that I talk about. And that, that's a conscious style I have. It's not being done just to be folksy or something. I mean, I, I think, I mean... I've written that way in, a, in other things that I've written about as well. And, and part of uh, the, the motivation for that is that, you know, it's sort of like the political is personal and the personal is political. Mm. And I think in a lot of ways it's more engaging. And also I find it more interesting writing myself as, as you know, uh, to approach an issue through someone's personal experience in dealing with it and through their own life and how they came to that issue. Uh, rather than just uh, a lot of jargon and statistics and things like that. And so I think that, um, you know, that that was sort of the motivation in telling these sort of personal histories of a lot of the activists involved. And I think in doing that, it becomes much more, as you were just saying, than, than a book about 1983. Because when you get into people's stories, you're, you're telling how did they get to 1983 in their yeah. life. How did they get to the point where they wanted, were active or wanted to participate in this movement in 1983? And sometimes it takes you back decades of their life, sometimes you, even before that, to their parents' activism. And, you know, there was a tremendous history of activism in this province. When you mentioned Greenpeace, for example, um, it, it began, in, it became a worldwide phenomenon, but began in B.C. Uh, the, the term was coined in B.C., Wobblies, the legendary uh, syndicalist union, they were coined. Their name was coined in B.C. Uh, even later, Occupy Wall Street was mm. coined in B.C. I That's mean, right. there is a, a, tradi- a, you know, a left history here unlike any other problem, you know, unlike most of, anywhere in North America, really. I mean, there are other pockets of, I don't want to say that there's, uh, it's the only progressive part of North America. There's places like the San Francisco Bay Area, and Quebec has an interesting history, but... Uh, and, and a cup, you know, the, the occasional place. But Vancouver is very, very unusual, and BC as a whole, um, in, in that it does have this uniquely progressive history. And, um, and so, in telling 
the story of 1983 and, the, and going into the history of how we got there and the personalities, it became more than a story about 1983. It became kind of a, a history of B.C. in the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of these names that 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 are mentioned in the book, and you know, um, just just offhand, even like people like Don Black and Nettie Wild, who end up, you know, we we learn about them later on, or become play a bigger part in in years later. Right. Um, but you know, not to mention the, the the people that that you do follow throughout the book, like Patsy George or Fred Waugh or, or Raj Chauhan, who is now the the Speaker of the House mm-hmm. in Victoria. Um, it, it it is really a, a, a marvelous history of this place going back 40 years or so. Yeah, I, that's what I, basically, even back to the 30s, uh, yeah. when there was a, you know, significant movement there, it became, to me, it became sort of a, in, in doing this, as much as, uh, as the story of Solidarity 1983, it became the story of B.C. 20th century. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of these people, obviously, were 20th century people. And, and, uh, and you know, their histories and the history of, of the kind of activism that, that erupted and came to a head. See, 1983 was kind of the climactic moment of all of this stuff, that this uh, history of progressivism in B.C. was the climactic moment of this century of that was uh, four months in 1983. And, and those were the solidarity months. And, and what happened, basically, when I talk about this rising of resistance, uh, the thing that made it so powerful is actually there was sort of three branches to it. One... There was Operation Solidarity, which was the union uh, front, a front of, uh, of, of uh, trade unions. Mm-hmm. Then there was Solidarity Coalition, which was a sort of combine of social movements and community groups. And then the third was sort of just the general public uh, that hadn't, uh, many of whom uh, had never been active before or participated in protests before, but were just outraged by this this uh, budget that that, that uh, the Socrates had unleashed. And so when, when you had all three of these things happening simultaneously, it was the makings of a real historic social movement. Yeah. And so the, 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 the face of that movement, was that Art Cuby? Well, you know, there were several faces of it, to be fair. I mean, there were a lot of uh, real activists. I mean, for example, Solidarity Coalition, the social movement component of it, they would meet weekly, uh, at their office on on West Broadway, in Vancouver, and uh, and they'd have representatives from various social movements. It'd be an environmental rep, a gay rep, a feminist rep, and, and all of these people were very articulate, passionate people within their own movements. And so it was a collection of activists who who had been operating in their own silos that were suddenly operating together. So it made a formidable force. So uh, these people were, so it was really more than, I would say, just one person to look at. I mean, there was a lot of real, you know, adept organizers, people like you mentioned Patsy George before, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, you know, uh, there's some real uh, strong organizers involved in this. Um, there were uh, pr- probably, uh, though, in terms of media and whatnot, during the bulk of it, the person who drew maybe the most attention was Art Kuby who uh, came up with uh, the idea of calling it Solidarity and um, at the time was the president of the B.C. Federation of Labor. Yeah, and, and um, the, the other fa- famous face, of course, is Jack Monroe, who was, um, I, get, I guess, um, growing up as I did, I, I sort of thought of him as, as a major player. But as you write in the book, he, he really didn't um, like the, the, the movement itself, did he? 
way. He was only uh, only a major player in that he played uh, a, a major role in the ultimate uh, in the anticlimactic ending of the mm. whole thing. In that he uh, was the face of the capitulation of uh, of uh, uh, some of the BC Fed leadership at the very end. Uh, what what happened? Uh, just to say it briefly, is that uh, there, there was this. The end game that seemed to be evolving, that people, of all this activism that had been going on for four months, it seemed there had been some major protests, like there was a huge protest outside the Hotel Vancouver when the Socrates had their annual convention. There mm-hmm. was a huge protest at Empire Stadium. There were, in Victoria, the legislature, uh, occupations, like, uh, for example, at the Tranquil Mental Health Facility in Kamloops and mm. others. And, and anyway, they, it, it seemed that Finally, the end game to all of this was going, to, uh, for a lot of people anyway, was the idea that there would be a, a province-wide general strike, uh, unions plus with all sorts of uh, solidarity co- and everybody else participating in well in different in different ways, and that uh, and this would be the confrontation against the government and this legislation, the final confrontation, and some of the leadership of the BC Federation of Labour uh, got very very squeamish about this mm. idea. Uh, some of the, there was some conservative leadership within there, and Art Kuby was sick at the time, and he was out of the picture. And so Jack Monroe, who represented that kind of anti-general strike leadership within that uh, organization, within that movement, was dispatched to Kelowna to meet with uh, Bennett. Mm-hmm. And what he did up there is they came up with what they called the Kelowna Accord, in which basically uh, it ended the, abruptly ended the entire uprising. Uh, and people were shell-shocked by uh, how quickly it ended and all of this energy and all this passion that had gone into it. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, as far as Monroe's role, that would be it more than anything else. He really did not like uh, a lot of these uh, activist elements within the Solidarity Movement, and he was eager to uh, end the move towards a general strike. Um, So... So it's true, he did have a fairly uh, high profile within it, and but it was him, and not him alone, that, uh, that uh, basically brought it to that anticlimactic ending. Before Kelowna, before, before Monroe goes up to, to meet Bennett um, and negotiates with Norman Spector, um, the, the BCGEU, uh, the, the Teachers Union, uh, both of those organizations, were they on strike? Yeah, they were on strike. See, yeah. what happened was... Uh, there was this huge rally outside the Soker Convention Hotel Vancouver and in, in uh, uh, mid-October, and immediately after that there was a real escalation towards a general strike. I see. And uh, there were plans, an actual scenario laid out where uh, unions uh, would, would uh, uh, rolled out a general strike when each union would go out and what, the, what would happen. And what had happened by early November is... Uh, the BCGU and the BC Teachers Federation were both out, and a bunch of other unions were just about to join in. They were poised to join, and that's when uh, that's when it was shut down. Now, I do want to stress one thing: that the anticlimactic ending, uh, all, all, uh, you know, doesn't really represent uh, the greatness of the Solidarity Uprising. <laughs> that yeah. that it was far better and far more than that. That's what happened, and it's unfortunate. Um, and the, the reality is nobody knows for sure. Nobody can say definitively 
what would have happened if the general strike had proceeded, if solidarity had kept going. But I could say one thing for sure. They would have got more than they got in Kelowna, mm. uh, and, uh, which was not a hell of a lot. And so basically what ended up happening is um, the movement itself, uh, like I say, a lot of people are very, very upset at how it ended. But I also want to stress the positive uh, four months. That's much more important than the anticlimactic ending, I think. The fact that the, 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 a province, an entire province, mobilized hundreds of thousands of people the way it was here, and, and, and uh, the passion that was involved, the activism that was involved, the idealism, and it represents, like I say, one of the great uh, social uprisings in North American history. And, and that's what's really interesting to look at. You know, It's unfortunate what happened at the end. But uh, solidarity was far greater than that uh, anticlimactic ending. What do you think um, motivated, say, the, the or, or, or what was the, the the reason for the squeamishness on the part of, of um, the people who were opposed to the general strike? And I'm talking about people like Monroe, people in, within the solidarity movement itself. Well, I think you know, uh, within uh, the trade union movement was pretty divided. There were some very progressive people who would have been on side in a general strike, like the Kamoa, Kamoa unions, uh, you know, with Jess Sakamura and, and, and those unions, uh, the CCU unions. Mm-hmm. Also, the fishermen, uh, the farm workers, the postal workers, the carpenters, uh, Sorwak. I mean, there were a, a number of very progressive unions in, in the province. However, they were uh, a minority in the union movement. There were... Not, you know, just because it's a union doesn't, movement doesn't mean everybody there is uh, is really, uh, uh, you know, progressive. Or, or votes NDP, the right? There were yeah. some pretty conservative business unions right. and people in leadership roles within the B.C. Fed who didn't see unions as a social movement or being part of transforming society. They saw unions more, you know, as just dealing with our next contract kind of thing. And right. they didn't really see the idea of confronting all this legislation and these these social issues that uh, that had been raised by Bennett's legislation and the resistance to it they, to them that was anathema to them anathema to them they did did not want a union to play that kind of activist role and so I mean, a simple answer to your question is they were basically conservative mm. you know they were not just because they were union reps does not mean they were real progressive um and and uh, there were a, a large element of those kind of union leaders uh, in, in the in the Fed in the in the leadership of of the union movement here, and so uh, at at the end that's sort of who uh, ended it abruptly. Yeah, uh, someone that you you write about throughout the book is Stan Persky. Right. Um, what was he doing in 1983? Well, he was the editor of Solidarity Times. He he came up with the idea for a Solidarity News. Now, Persky had been a really well-known uh, activist out at uh, University of BC and, um, you know, had been involved in a lot of stuff, starting with the beats in the in the 50s and through the hippie counterculture and, and you know, just a very well-known activist at the time. He came up with the idea... Of a, uh, of a Solidarity new, uh, Movement newspaper, which they called Solidarity Times, had a wonderful staff of, yeah. of young writers, some of whom went on to fairly well, well-known um, work as, as writers in the city and, and in B.C. Mm-hmm. in general. And uh, so it had a really 
uh, terrific staff of, of, of uh, young writers, and it had Persky. And uh, they became the newspaper for solidarity, uh, the Solidarity Movement. And, and it, you know, uh, published, uh, you know, I, I don't know the exact publishing schedule they had, but it, it, it you know, it did uh, attract a, a lot of interest and, uh, you know, it was what, what you looked for to get the latest on the Solidarity Movement. Yeah, there were some of the people that, that uh, we all know now, people like Tom Hawthorne and Keith Baldry and John Mackey, who's still at The Sun. Exactly. They all yeah. were young writers on, at Solidarity Times. That's yeah. correct. And uh, all very talented writers. Um, like Hawthorne and, and uh, Mackey, very very talented writers. Who funded the, the, the paper? Uh, it was funded by the union movement. I see. It was funded by the union movement. So even that created a little bit of conflict, I think, you know, in the sense that these uh, young writers also had a real cultural side to them. They were really interested in alternative culture, music. There's a big punk scene had been happening in, in the Vancouver area and things like that. And so some of that was expressed in the pages of the paper, which I think... So, I, and I do want to stress when we're talking quite a bit about the union movement and the divisions within that, yeah. but that was only part of solidarity. The this, this, this social, in the 1960s and 70s, there were a huge uh, uprising uh, called the New Left, anti-war student movement, anti-racist, anti-sexist movements, uh-huh. uh, rise of feminism. These were This was a huge thing in the Western world. And in Vancouver, it was very, very active, this New Left. And in the early 80s, these people were still relatively young that had been activists in the 60s and 70s and still right. uh, active. And so it wasn't just unions we've been talking about. It was these social people who had been act, activated during uh, the 60s and 70s and, a lot, and, and the movements that had risen up. For example, the feminist movement had, had risen during that era, during the era of the New Left. And it played a key role in the Solidarity Movement, probably uh, the key uh movement solidarity was a movement of movements and probably the key movement of the solidarity coalition was women against the budget which was a feminist component of it and uh they they organized some very creative rallies and all sorts of uh you know all sorts of events and educational events and and different things and and were just a, a major major player Within within solidarity, the women against the budget. Um, we mentioned Cuba a moment ago. Um, near the end there, especially during the, the so-called Colonna Accord um, days, um, he was quite sick, wasn't he? Yeah, I you know I don't know exactly what he he was sick with or what was going on there, but I know he was uh, working real hard and, and you know, long days, long hours, and. And uh, near the end, I, I, I don't know if he collapsed from exhaustion or, or what it was, but he was not around when uh, Monroe and Monroe, uh, Monroe and his ilk uh, kind of took command of, of um, the BC Fed's role and uh, Operation Solidarity's role in, in uh, the uprising. And so Kubi kind of uh you know had gotten sick near the end there and and yeah he wasn't he wasn't there when the uh accord had happened so, uh, so I, who I, knows what would have happened yeah. if he had been around and, and had gone up there because he was less conciliatory than uh, he he was let's just put it this way he was more progressive than than monroe and his in his group and yeah. 
but whether or not one person could have stood in the Fed could have stood up to those all of those forces is is very questionable too, though. Yeah, I bring him up because I just after reading your book, I have all these what ifs in my mind. What what if there was a general strike? What if a better deal could have been had with with QB negotiating? Say. Um, well, I think Kubi was a very decent guy. Yeah. Uh, the sense I, I all, uh, you know, I, I met him several times, and and everything I hear about him, just, you know, uh, uh just on a human level, you know, he, uh, even when he, after he retired from the union movement, he stayed active working with seniors and mm-hmm. seniors' issues and things like that. I mean, he was, uh, I think, a union guy who was legitimately interested in more than just union issues. He was interested in in the community, the social issues, and, uh, you know, yeah, so, yeah, I think he did have a, a different take on it all than someone like Monroe. So then I'm wondering, as I finish your book, David, uh, what happens later, and, and of course, the Socreds are, 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 they replace Bennett with Bill, or Bennett retires, and then Bill Vanderzen comes in. Um, there's really not much of a change in terms of, of the popular vote after in, in 86. Um and then, you know, fast forward to 2001 when Gordon Campbell comes into office. You know, he he, he has his own, I guess, uh, string of legislation that, that um, you know, confounds and challenges people in this province as well. Um, how, did, how did 1983, how did Solidarity change B.C.? I mean, if, if you look at it, uh, well, it does, uh, but it, in a way it doesn't, doesn't it? Uh, well, you know, it's a very good question. It's interesting. I don't think he can necessarily judge the impact of an event by its um, immediate effect. I mean, I'll just give you one example. Uh, one of the most famous general strikes ever happened in France in 1968. Oh, yeah. uh, there was some student protests. They were repressed violently by the police. They, there were more protests. The unions came in. Pretty soon they were on, people were on strike, but they didn't just strike. They literally took over the factories. They took over. Uh, they were running them, uh, you know, workers' control, that kind of thing. There were national uh, theater was turned into an assembly uh, of uh, decision-making. It was like a huge uprising there. And the thing that was interesting is right afterwards, um, the conservative uh, forces there, electoral forces, won the next French election. Mm. So you could look at that and say, well, you know, you had this big uprising, then the conservatives got in but you know the reality is though in the long run that what happened in france in 68 had huge impact on people in france and around the world and served as an example of you know uh, um a real transformative general strike and what i mean by transformative is that there's different ways of looking at a general strike some people have a very limited view it's just it's a strike to deal with specific management or government uh, legis- uh, yeah. issues. Yeah. Uh, other people have a more transformative view, people like Emma Goldman or Rosa Luxemburg or the Wobblies, in which they look at it as a, something where you, you uh, strike, but you don't just go out, out on the picket line. You literally ta- you know, uh, begin workers' self-management or workers' control in the, the places that have been struck. For example, the bus drivers, instead of walking on a picket line, they keep driving the buses, only they run them for free. So it's sort of like uh, a way of transforming society. It's a, it's, a, it's a much larger concept of the general strike. And there was a lot of those elements that happened in France in 68. What would have happened here, like I say, I don't, do not know. But in terms of uh, long-term impact, uh, I don't know that you can completely judge it from 
looking at it just electorally, because you're right, electorally things didn't change a lot. The the uh, uh, NDP and the Socrates continued to divvy up the province. Only the Socrates changed the name to the Liberals after a while. Yeah. And and it's you know if you look at the actual division in the province electorally, even to this day, it's not that different yeah. than it was in 1983. Only that, like I say, they're called Liberals now instead of Socrates. Uh, however, I think that uh, a lot of people that were exper- experienced that movement uh, changed personally, and and it, you know how that affects the rest of their life and their children's lives and their friends. I mean, who's to know how much it actually... Uh, actually, I'm, I'll just give you one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the BC Teachers Federation, which really uh, wasn't that much of an activist union before 1983. Uh, they weren't treated that well they were, uh, at the end of it. They were sort of just, uh, you know, when the, when the sellout happened in Kelowna, they were kind of just shoved aside without even having input. I mean, their strike ended. Um, but I think by being treated so undemocratically and by experiencing going out like that for social issues, it changed that union. It became a much more democratic union internally mm. and became a much more activist union. So that's an example of how something, because of solidarity, uh, a particular bunch of people and a particular organization was affected. So there, were, there was a fact like that. Plus, and, and you know, and I think just in in talking about it, like we're doing right now, and and, and thinking about it, reading about it, uh, learning about it, and and as well as individual uh, participation in it back then, and how it affected people's lives, that you know, hopefully there is some sort of uh, lessons to be learned from it, and and some sort of, uh, an impact that will be a little more lasting than you might think. If I'm just looking at election returns, you know, hopefully that people, I think there's some serious lessons to be learned from it, right? Yeah. Like yeah. we started off talking about how it was an example of how to mobilize an entire commu- uh, pr- uh, province uh, against a, a set of, uh, of legislation or far-right legislation. I mean, that in itself is quite a significant lesson, right? Indeed. You talked to Sabora Berman uh, at the, near the end of the book, and she talks about the influence it had on, on her own activism later right. on. And I think if you look at, for example, uh, I mean, a lot of the movements, one of the things that I think is really interesting with, with that is that um, if you go back to 1983, a lot of the movements that are big movements now uh, were kind of like informative stages then, and people were kind of operating in their own silos, you know? Yeah. Like the environmental movement, um, uh, gay movement, movements like this that later went on to be major uh, players in in, uh, in in social activism. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like they were insignificant. They weren't. But, but, it, uh, but they did develop much stronger later and and i think that um i i think a lot of contact between people was made then and and a lot of understanding of uh, the broader world and and i mean i think uh, that's another lesson of it right is yeah. that um people you know do 
you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, whether it's identity politics or just being interested in your own personal experiences or focusing on an issue that really grabs you, uh, people tend to be involved in a certain kind of activism that they personally want to be involved in. But I think part of the lesson of this is that sometimes you have to work with people who aren't like you if you want to make larger fundamental transformative uh, change across the whole society. And I think that part of the lesson of this was that how effectively that was done for a few months, you know. And that people actually, uh, all these people who had been working alone or with people like them, interested in issues like them, were suddenly working with a bunch of other people on the same issue, which was stop Socred devastation. And it showed how effective that could be sometimes when you join forces in a larger coalition. Indeed, indeed. Um, you mentioned Len Norris in the book. Um, I, I collect um, political buttons and, and ephemera and the sort, and one of the things, one of the projects I had the last couple of years was, was collecting all those collections that he had uh, of his cartoons that, that he'd put out yearly. Oh, that's a different Len Norris, actually. You're thinking oh. of the cartoonist. This was the person I was referring to was uh, a, a man who had left the Vancouver area and fought in the Spanish Civil War back then. Yeah, uh, see, I thought it was the same Len guy. Norris. I know who you're referring <laughs> to. There was another Len Norris who was the cartoonist with the Sun for many years. Both of them were, uh, you know, did some admirable uh, work. I'll say that. Yeah, I just especially thought, going to Spain. Yeah, uh, I thought I thought that was the same guy that went to well, Spain. Well, no, it's totally yeah. understandable that you think that. You know, it's a, no, it's a total understandable uh, connection to make there. What um, um, the the book has just come out. It, it, it's gotten some good notices, hasn't it? Well, you know, uh, yeah, it has, and and that's uh, that's nice to see that people appreciate uh, appreciate that, and I think. Um, you know, I think it's an important story to get out to people. I yeah. think that people, uh, this was a really important moment in the history of this place where we live. And um, and uh, one other thing I think, you know, uh, one other thing I just want to say about sure. that is that I, uh, one of the areas that I go into that some writers aren't as, maybe as quite as interested in is, is culture. Yeah. Uh, I think B.C., we're talking about how B.C. has a real politically left history. It also has a really uh, interesting, unusual uh, cultural history, uh, subcultural history. Um, you know, like the, there was some beat-influenced writers and, and a magazine that came out of UBC in the early 60s that was real significant called Tish. There was a massive counterculture here, hippie counterculture in the 60s and 70s that was known uh, throughout the counterculture world. There was a punk scene here. Uh, later, uh, later on, that was very influential. Had some great bands that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, had influence um, outside of Vancouver. And quite often, people in Vancouver aren't even aware that these movements are happening here. But the rest of the world, or at least the underground rest of the world, knows about them. And so I do talk a bit. You know, I do talk about uh, that because a lot of times, I think uh, people, like a young, a young people, will be open to some kind of cultural influences like that, whereas they wouldn't be open to some leafleting lefty handing out, uh, you know, pamphlets on a street corner or something. Yeah. But they're they're interested in in um, 
you know, when it's presented through music, presented through uh, these different forms, uh, which Vancouver has is really um, famous for. Um, and so I do talk about that. I talk about the subcultural influences and, uh, you know, um, there's all sorts of connections, whether you're talking about music or film or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, you, you so all of these things that were going on. You talk about a movie in the book called The Bitter Ash. Mm-hmm. What is that about? Well, The Bitter Ash is a movie that was... Uh, one of the first English-language independent films ever made in Canada, maybe the first. It was made in Vancouver, I think, 63, uh-huh. maybe 60. Yeah, I think it was yeah. 63, uh, by a filmmaker named Larry Kent, who was very left himself. And um, and it was uh, he, he was going to UBC at the time. They didn't have a film studies program yet, but he was out there. Uh, and... And they had some very good young actors there in the yeah, theater department, and so they put to, put together this movie, and it's a really interesting depiction of Vancouver and subcultural Vancouver in the early 1960s, even before any of the hippie or punk stuff had, had really exploded on the scene. And there was one scene in particular in Coal Harbor where a lot of beats lived in those days, a party, yeah, a party scene at I believe Jamie Reed's place who. who Became a well-known writer himself, yeah. and and they filmed this, and it was like a, a, a party scene with um, all these early 1960s Bohemian Vancouver characters, and it's just a great uh, bit of classic Vancouver footage. Yeah, that's see, I was reading about that, and it's it's a movie that now I want to see. I want to I want to try to find, if you will. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the thing is, these. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's, uh, yeah. I'm glad. You know, if if I can spur that kind of interest a bit with you or other people reading it, and some of the cultural history too, because to me it's all interwoven, right? Yeah. I look at like the political history, the cultural history, all of this stuff that is kind of enriching people and 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 bringing out the humanity in people, as all sort of uh, it's all tied together, right? Yeah, and, and the, you mentioned Eddie Wilde's documentary, Right to Fight. Mm-hmm. About uh, I guess uh, about squatters I believe. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, that's another movie I want to see because I, I. Well, well, that's interesting too because Nettie uh, was involved in some of the solidarity stuff. She was at, for example, at the Empire Stadium rally. Yeah. And I did talk to her. She's one of the people I interviewed for the book, and she talks about her memories of of solidarity and and having some participation in it. Yeah. Um, I could talk all afternoon with you, um, but but I'll let you go because um, um, just how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this book. Congratulations on it, David, and continued good luck with it. Well, thanks very much for having me on the show, and I enjoyed talking with you. The book is called Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983. It's published by Ronsdale Press. It's author David Spanner. Join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.